0: Welcome to Built by a Boss. I'm your host, Evelyn Brooks, journalist, award-winning producer, author, founder of In My Solitude LA. On this podcast, you'll hear the unique origin story of Gwendolyn Quinn. Her career in media and public relations has paired her with some of the industry's brightest stars, including the late Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston, Prince, Sean Diddy Combs, jesse norman queen latifah the clark sisters bishop td jakes kirk franklin and countless others she's the founder of the global communicator and before starting her company gq media and public relations she worked as an executive at Capitol records and arista records with music industry giant Clyde davis today we're talking about the police brutality protest around the world and how companies can not only respond, but change the narrative through long-term action. Here's Gwendolyn Quinn. Enjoy. Wow, it's so good to talk to you, Gwendolyn Quinn. It's great to hear from you too, Evelyn. <laughs> it's uh, it's crazy because we're watching things, we're hearing things, we're, the video is just so traumatizing. I wanted to talk to you because you are just a PR maven, like legendary. And I'm watching so many people literally struggle with their message, their words. I just thought, well, you know what? Let's talk to someone who does this professionally to give us some type of advice, not just us as individuals, but in particular corporations. So that's why we're talking today. (laughs)
1: All right. Let's 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 get at it. <laughs> <laughs> as Chris Cuomo would say, let's get at it.
0: <laughs> let's get at it. So let let's start with just the general idea that we've watched the entire world be impacted by George Floyd's death, and we're struggling with how to express how we feel. Some things are coming off as authentic, and then some things aren't. What is your perspective or your thought as you watch all of these things unfold?
1: Yeah, I think some, some of the uh, messaging is authentic and some of it is not. Messaging is one thing, but actually doing the work, is something else. But I don't think you can have these conversations about diversity and inclusion unless you have the right people at the table. So you can't just have a bunch of corporate heads get together. They don't really know much about diversity and inclusion because if they did, we wouldn't really be at this point. So I think they have to, you know, bring in some experts in that area. They're going to have to educate their team, educate their staff, educate all the people involved. And it's, it's, a, it's a marathon. Right. I mean, a lot of the corporations and the corporation heads just feel really awful about what's going on. Although this is not the first time, of course, this has been going on for decades now. But it was something about this particular incident with um, George Floyd that really touched a core I think for me, definitely it was because we were able to see so much of it on video. I was just, I just, it was, it was just a lot. And so I think we just have to keep the conversation going. We definitely have to bring the right people to the table and we have to see who's serious about doing the work.
0: Right. Well, it's interesting because when you talk about who is authentic and who isn't, it's kind of like a fine line. For example... Jamel Hill wrote this really great article for The Atlantic, and she was talking specifically about the NFL and how they, you know, released this statement, but then we know that Colin Kaepernick was vilified for kneeling, and now there's this seeming reversal. And so we look at that, and, and you have to call it out as inauthenticity. But then at the same time, it's like, well, this is an opportunity for everybody to really look at that behavior from the past and then do better.
1: Yes, it's definitely an opportunity, but we have to be smart about it. And it's all in our approach. So I've been particularly interested in, in politics and, and government to see some of the things that are going to be done in the House. From my perspective, you know, we have the election coming in November, and those are the things that I think we need to move on. the the bills that are before Congress right now, because you have to do a wise on everyone's mind. Mm -hmm. You got to make a move now. So those are kind of opportunities I think are more important um, because if we don't change those basic things about our civil rights and all these other things, none of the other stuff really, really matters.
0: And so when it comes to pointing people in that direction, as a PR professional, if you were talking to a particular corporation how would you advise them in terms of the messaging that they're putting out or going beyond that black square for Blackout Tuesday as, as, a, as a statement of support?
1: You can sit down and you can have a general overview conversation with a corporation, but there is some research that have to be done first, I think. You have to find out about the corporation and what kind of corporate responsibility things that they have been in. Do they have any issues that lean towards racism. So it's not just sitting there talking, giving ideas. You have to do some research first to find out what corporation that you're really, really involved in. Are they giving money to the Republicans? Are they giving money to the Democrats? It's just a a whole lot of things that I think the research is very important first.
0: Well, I think a, a perfect example of that is Wendy's came out with a statement talking about everything that they were doing in terms of corporate responsibility and they were giving money to this particular organization. But then they also are donors to the Republican campaign, particularly to the president. This is not to say that if you are a Republican that you don't care about this issue. Um, Exactly. So I certainly don't want to say that. But I do want to call attention to the disconnect that can exist and that can be perceived when you say that you are in favor or support of Black Lives Matter or diversity, but your record doesn't necessarily speak to that. So I think this is an opportunity, I think, for everybody to see where is the disconnect? Can I look at my boardroom? Can I look at the executive leadership? Can I look at the rank and file? Like, are we diverse? Sometimes I think it's like, you need to have your own review board, you know, so to speak, because it's like you can't see your blind spots all the time.
1: Of course. And their whole perspective is different. Let's be honest. All of this posturing and positioning, you know, I know people have a heart and some people really, really care, but it's about business too. Right. It's about business. You know, Wendy wants to make sure that black people are still supporting their franchise.
0: Right. I mean, we see the connections between the money, as you said, because it's, it's, it's business for everyone. And I, and I think what's interesting about this moment is that black people in particular have been weighing it's almost like you could see the wheels turning when certain influencers or celebrities will come out against what has happened, because people have worked very hard to get to a certain level in their careers. And they're concerned. They're weighing whether or not that they speak out. Um, There's one actor who spoke out at a Black Lives Matter rally, and he said, I know I may not work again for this. So there's a legitimate fear. And there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, and it was specifically, um, it was a woman named Bridget Lumpkins. And she talked about, this was her quote, she says, I'm still having to dial in and perform as though nothing is wrong. This is my day job, and being Black is like my other job." I just thought, we also are the message, right? When you go to work in corporate America or when you are an influencer or a celebrity or whatever it is your line of work is, how you are representing yourself in this moment will dictate how seriously someone may take this. And if you're silent, it's like you are complicit in your own demise in a way. So people are speaking that you've never heard before. What, what is your thought about that?
1: Mm, yeah. A lot of people are speaking. So a lot of people has had an awakening mm-hmm. experienced that they've never had before. People should just be real clear about their position and their message because I do feel like we're all out here on our own still. And some people are not really wise about how they approach things and I think that's important, particularly if you you have a job. For me, I, I you know, I don't work for anyone, so I tend to, you know, be a lot more verbal. I think about what I say, but I don't really care how it impacts other people when I get to that point. But when you if you work for a corporation or work for someone, you you, you can't Take that approach.
0: It's it's like a catch twenty two because it's kind of like if people don't know what you're going through or what your struggles are, then there is the perspective and the expectation that it's business as usual. So it's like if you don't say that you are in pain, no one knows that you are, and then as a result of that, your performance is not what it it should be in this moment in time. And I I don't see how anyone could have the expectation, at least not to ask the question, like, how how are you doing? If they, you know, if you have Black employees, like, the entire country is just on fire. So for me to get on Zoom and just to act as if everything (laughs) is great, it's just like, that's really hard. No, it's very difficult, but
1: I think that we we have to also still be thoughtful, and this process that we're going through right now is not going to happen overnight. That's what people have to understand, right. and there's still going to be a lot of frustration along the way. Sometimes we have to just figure things out for ourselves and, and take care of ourselves first, and so I think, that, I think that people should have support groups. I think people should talk to other people. Who are in similar situations, and I think it's fine for an employee to go to their employer to find out what are they doing about these diversity inclusion issues, and do they have anything planned for the company, and how can I get involved, and I would like to be a voice for that. I mean, that's fine. I think people should really do that, yeah. but everybody is not wired to do that. Some right. people are just right. passive and quiet. It doesn't mean that they don't want change. I think white people are very nervous. They're very nervous about what what the outcome of this can be. It's not good for business either, you know, for, from their perspective. It's just not good for business, too. Right. And right. some people are, you know, this young generation that we have, they're very smart. <laughs> And I don't know if people giving them enough credit, but I was listening to President Obama and he was saying that, you know, it was a lot of young people like Malcolm X and Dr. King and a bunch of the civil, right, civil rights leaders back in that time. They were very young.
0: I agree that, you know, clearly it's going to take time, but people are they're They're like, OK, well, we're, we're done waiting. And, and I think that is I think that is the opportunity when we look at the aftermath of all of that. And so I think that when we talk about channeling this anger and this frustration into actually making laws and changes, I mean, there are some people that say defund the police completely. There are other people who say, you know, register to vote and vote them out. I mean, I think that this is an opportunity to apply all different approaches so that we can see how to move forward and, and what is actually going to work? Because I think what's great is it's clear that everyone that things need to change. Part of what you do and what you've done so well is you have guided public personas and the careers of legendary people. And so as we look now and want to kind of pull in our celebrities and public figures that have the power and the authority and the money. What would you suggest to them in terms of crafting their messages to be able to help shape the narrative because it's their voice is really needed?
1: Well, it has to be something that's authentic. If you're going to have a celebrity involved in a campaign, you have to make sure that celebrity is going to be right for that campaign. Right. It cannot be a bandwagon approach. And, and sometimes everything is not meant to be c- celebrity driven. It's great, like when when Jay Z called the governor um, of Minnesota, and I think those things are important. I mean, you could just look back to the '60s, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know, a lot of one of my former clients, Aretha Franklin, she was very involved in the civil rights movement. But that was that was just like that was a that they were living in that. They were living in a different
0: time, but we're going through that same period again. Well, what was powerful though about the '60s that I think I would like to see more of is when you looked at the '60s and you saw black folks that were on the front line that they were being hosed and you know bitten by dogs. When you see those iconic images of you know Dr. King and Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier and all of those people and they're walking arms locked and it's sending a message because they're not going to be them in front of, you know, national television. So it sent a message to America that this is not okay. And they put themselves on the line. They put their careers on the line at that time. And I really understood that when that young man said, Hey, I may not have a career because it's a feeling that people have. And I, I think that when people band together, they are much stronger, their voice is much stronger than that one lone person. It's like when Kaepernick was out there kneeling basically alone, his voice and the message was much stronger when LeBron James got on board and all of the other players came out to support them. So I think that you know, seeing celebrities get involved in a way that is right for them is very helpful for, for a movement like this because... It lets everyday Black folks that are putting their lives on the line know that they're not alone and that people care.
1: Well, yeah, similar to, yeah, definitely what's going on with George Floyd. Uh, you know, Reverend Shopton and all the all the celebrities that attended his service, the memorial service yesterday. I was very happy about seeing that. Yes. I was also happy about seeing members of the Congressional Black Caucus, the NAACP, Dr. King's son, uh, Martin III. Um, no, it's very, very important. And I think we're at that time now. Absolutely. There's a lot to be done, but I think we should We should study. For those who are not familiar with the movement and what happened, um, we should study some of that stuff now. But just like tear gas that people are using, a lot of this stuff, we shouldn't be even using that stuff now. So you mean to tell me from the 60s to now, no one has been really fighting to have that stuff removed now? I mean, think about it, Evelyn. It's like the stuff that we're, we're, we're fighting for now, this has been... Almost 50 years, over 50 years. If we don't get that stuff straight there, it doesn't matter. Who cares about the messaging if we, you know, if we don't have our basic civil rights?
0: Yeah, I I agree with you 100%. And 100%.
1: And that's why Harry Belafonte, Dr. King, Malcolm X, and all of them, Reverend Jackson, they were back there fighting for that because we're fighting about some of the same things we did 50 years ago literally the same things. And, and I and think we are,
0: and, but but I think people are distracted. What do you think they're distracted by?
1: We have a president that's trying to distract us every
0: day. I mean, I agree. I, I, I think that when we looked at that video, I think that was really the tipping point because we know it was the tip of the iceberg, but it was the tipping point because it was, it was almost like...
1: You but it shouldn't a- have been a tipping point, though, Evelyn. It really should not have because... We have been going through this for the last three decades, yeah. these types of cases. So but, why is it but, okay. that this is just a tipping point?
0: Because you know why it was the tipping point? And I can only speak for why it was the tipping point for me and for people that I spoke with. But it was the tipping point because we are disconnected, right? Just in terms of how we live as human beings in America, right? So we have, we live in... Segregated cities in our black community, we don't all live in the same place like we may have lived 50 years ago where, you know, the black dentist and the lawyer and the gangbanger and the preacher and, and, and the school teacher, everybody was in one community due to segregation. But now we're all dispersed, and so we're not necessarily all in the same place. So it's very easy for us to grow up in a place where you're not necessarily knowing what's going on in the hood every day and the impact of police brutality. So we're seeing these cases, um, we're hearing about them, but we're not seeing an actual live example, a live killing on television on our phones that basically sent the message to everyone who ever thought that what they drove where they lived, how much money they had, whether they were light skin or dark skin it, it sent the message to everyone that we are fair game out in these streets and it was it was primal it was a primal scream of no more that you heard not just black people but anybody who had any type of heart or conscience, heard that seeing the life escape from his body woke us all up out of whatever dream we were in to say oh we got to we got to look at this we have to focus on that so that's why for me it was just like the tipping point because all of these things yes have been going on but you know we get into our little corners and spaces and places and we're comfortable and we stop looking behind our shoulder so distractions I, yeah
1: distractions so
0: This has focused everybody on like, oh no they're they're coming for all of you
1: <laughs> Well, I'm glad that we some of us you know had an awakening, so that's that's good, um uh, I mean, just think, I mean it's June, we're five months um away from from voting right right, right, and that's going to be a nightmare. I can see it now, it's going to be a nightmare
0: and so. If, if voting was a PR campaign, how do you even approach that in terms of getting people registered to vote? Like, this, there should be an impetus now to do that. But
1: I think people are. I think there's definitely a lot of things that's happening that we don't hear about on the news, because the news is only focused on this particular issue right now and COVID. So um, this issue with George Floyd, God bless his soul. But there are a lot of people in the community, at the community level, doing a lot of work. But that's what they should be focused on, getting people registered to vote before it's too late to get registered. So what I would do as a campaign, first of all, they got to do that because we're coming up on deadlines soon for that. And then we have to figure out if it is a pandemic, let's say it will be one in a are that's, that's what the scientists are saying that what are we going to do to make sure people vote? Some people are not really, some people are not really comfortable when doing voting in the mail. Like, how are these districts going to coordinate in-person voting if we have to do that? Well, a lot of people are going to do in-person voting because they don't trust the system. But how are we going to do it in a very safe way? I'm not hearing those conversations. I know that they're going on. But that's what we should be thinking about. That's what Black people should be thinking about right now. Because that's the main thing. We've got to get this. we got to get there first. We've got to make sure, A, we stay safe and so that we'll be around to vote in November.
0: Right. <laughs> right. That's the COVID's main thing. still out here. It's still out here on and popping. Yeah. And we have
1: to do that first. Um, and then we have to figure out how we're going to vote. And we have to, we have to hold out our um, local politicians to the wire about this and put pressure on them while we're out there protesting. There needs to be protests about the voting. Right. I mean, because we all know what happened in several elections. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, we've got to make sure that doesn't happen again.
0: Here's my question. In previous years and decades, we always had black publications that we could work through to get that message out and so now we're in a situation where i mean i'm sure you could give more insight than i can but we don't have as many we have very few
1: yeah there's been a lot of um, african-american media outlets that have closed or they don't have a staff i think we have to really lean on the african-american journalists that are working in broadcast media print media radio um, to continue to get our messages out. They've been doing a great job, but we have to really lean on them because we also can't isolate our message to smaller publications that people are no longer really reading anymore. And I think we spend a lot of our time, black people spend a lot of, look, we spend a lot of our time on two things, social media and television and our phones. Right, there's a lot of really amazing black journalists that are working at these mainstream outlets, and it's a lot of them that are fighting every day. We don't even know about it, but they're fighting for us every day, unfortunately. Some of the black journalists are not on, on the anchor desk. So you still have a lot of, you know, white people reporting on news. These networks spend tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars on research every year. And the research still comes back that black people still outdistance any other group for watching television and primarily women, with the exception of sports. Right. But we should have more black journalists on the front lines. We should have more than we have. And we have to read and we have to read the smart stuff.
0: What does that mean?
1: You know, we have to read the smart publications, the publications that are fair and the publications that are doing a good job at trying to really tell the story, you know. Right. And I think, you, you know, you read them, you know, you know, you know, there's certain publications you get pinned on hearing the truth from. But again, if they don't have a lot of black journalists, there, it's still from someone else's perspective.
0: Well, right. Because you're not controlling. Well, I mean, if you don't own it, you don't really control the narrative. And then at any moment in time, that division or that department or that, that show can just be canceled. So... I think ownership becomes really important, not just in our own businesses, you know, our livelihood, but when we look at the looting and things that are going on during this, these protest marches. A lot of it is not coming from our neighborhood, but people that are coming into the neighborhood. But having a sense of ownership of your home or your your business adds to your willingness to not just put yourself out there and the protest, but also to be involved in the system because you have some, some stake in it. And I, and I just think that that is part of the message that needs to go out there because not everybody feels that voting works for them. You know what I mean? They're not seeing the results of it. There are people that say, yeah, we had a president, a black president for this amount of time, but it didn't really have an impact on my day to day life and my community. So we have to look at those, those socioeconomic inequalities, because everybody is not getting the benefit of voting.
1: Well, listen, let me say this. This is definitely the time, because right now, for instance, me, I can't do one of my favorite pastimes, which is to go to Broadway shows. Mm -hmm. The concert business is not happening this year. There's a lot of things that we cannot do right now because of this pandemic. The, so, the racist pandemic and the virus. <laughs> right. So, so if that's not God speaking to us, I mean, we got to pay attention to that. We got to pay attention right now to the things that are important for us to pay attention to. I mean, that was the purpose of me just launching my new magazine. Yes. Tell me about your magazine. magazine. It, yeah, it was one of the things that was on my list for so long, but now I have time to do it. Um, so in that spirit, we should be getting other important things done and paying attention. But yes, my magazine, Global Communicator, is, um, is a relaunch of a magazine that I had out in 2004. Mm-hmm. And we focused on covering um, in-depth stories on publicists, uh, public relations professionals, um, journalists, uh, advertising executives, marketing professionals, and content creators, nice Uh, people of color. And I'm really excited about it because, you know, as much as we, and of course we would love to do an interview with you as well, but as Mm -hmm. much, as long as we've known each other, like Mm -hmm. I've known you, I think back from my BET days. So Mm -hmm. we're probably going on at least 15 years or more. Yes, Okay. But there's still a lot of things I still don't know about you. Yes, yes. You know what I mean? And I think that, that that is the one, I don't think too many publications like that exist. Right. You know, um, and my stories are, my friend has said to me, oh, what kind of magazine is? That? I said, you know, I want to it, it be a Black version of The New Yorker. <laughs> because you yeah. know, The New Yorker has those yeah. like three and four thousand piece stories. And, <laughs> Those yeah, stories. and my friend said, "Like it takes you a you week, week to read, right? Yeah. Exactly." My friend <laughs> said, "People are not going to read all those stories." I said, "Well, if they don't want to read three thousand or four thousand words, I mean, they're not even reading books." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we were really successful. I thought the last time. But we did a lot of the great publicists. I mean, we did Ava when she was a publicist.
0: Yes, that's yes, that's right. That's you know she now she's an
1: Oscar, uh, Oscar um, nominee. I mean, nominated um, filmmaker now. So you know, I'm really excited about it. It's going to be launched next week.
0: Excellent, excellent. I just remember when we first met. One of the things that was great about being able to work at BET during the period that I was there in the news, in the news department is that I got to meet literally all of the black publicists in the industry. And everybody's kind of doing something different or they're doing something else or they have their own business or they're working for a company, a publication or whatever. Um, one of the people that I worked with, he wasn't even a publicist, yes. He worked at um, Queen Latifah with me, B.J. Coleman. And he put out a post that I just thought was really interesting. And it's not necessarily something that you need to comment on unless you want to. But it was something that I observed as well. And I just wanted to talk about it because his post basically was about how Hollywood's out here protesting, but how many of them have a black publicist on their team. Um, Ooh, nice and, I, and I just thought, and I, I had to re- retweet it because i with my own eyes see that i see black journalists not being spoken to at these hollywood events where you know a black celebrity has to say to their publicist take me to talk to this black journalist can you speak to that issue? Of oh, black? yes,
1: I will be happy to. You know, these are conversations that have been coming up among Black publicists for years, but nothing has really been done. Um, there's been attempts to organize, but let me just give you some facts. I've, I've done some research in the areas of music, television, film, and sports. Entertainment. Mm-hmm. And the top 10, top 20 Black celebrities, Black act, uh, Black actors, Female and male, same on the music side. Sports, same thing with the males. They don't have Black publicists. Maybe on the music side, two people, and that's Jay-Z and Beyonce.
0: Wow. That
1: I, and I'm talking about the top 10, top 20. Beyonce, who um, Yvette Noel sure represents, and then um, Jana Flashman, who represents Jay-Z. If you go to, if you start like from Denzel... You know Samuel L. Jackson, all the, the A-list black talent—they all have white publicists for film and television. So, yeah, that that should be a story. Wow. wow, wow, wow. Yeah, but you know that that come that goes back, I think, to that old Hollywood thing. You know, these these athletes and these actors, they get these agents, which are mainly white agents, and the white agents select their doctors. They select their publicists. They select their lawyers, and they recommend all of their friends. Mm. That's, that's how it goes. Wow!
0: And then the other thing, and so it's like a gravy thing. train. Like they just so everybody gets paid off of but this. But we should one be person. off
1: of that gravy train by now, because you know, as a black, you know, young athlete or a black actress or um, actor, et cetera, they should be able to go in there to the agent and say I want one of the top black publicists representing me but they don't do that because you know what they think having a white publicist or other that they're going to get more publicity
0: that's what they believe that's what they believe cuz that's what it means to be successful if i'm with this that's agency and this publicist then i'm going to have more opportunity more opportunity than a black person can give me Right. And I've been
1: fortunate. My A-list client has been Aretha Franklin. Yes. So I've been very fortunate because Aretha is very Black like that. <laughs> <laughs> she, I'll <she's>,
0: say.
1: <laughs> And she, I mean, she's had me, she's, you know, all her record label publicists have been Black from Jackie Reinhardt to LaJoyce, Joyce And then, you know, um, it's several of us that work for her over the years as a label. I and Tracy Jordan, I worked with her at the label. And then after I started my own company in 2002, she stayed with me until her death. So wow. I was fortunate to have her. Um, but it's, it's, tough getting a bl- it's tough for a Black publicist to get a, an A-list client. Now, Jay-Z and Beyonce, they always have my vote because they always stayed with their publicists from the beginning. Right. And that says something about them. That says mm-hmm. something about them as people.
0: Because a lot of times people are, le- they just level up, like they will be with a particular black publicist, manager, et cetera, and then they get to a certain level and then they'll leave those people behind instead of bringing them with them. So oh, they you know. do
1: that all the time and they do that all the time. And it's like when a black publicist get a big dateless client and something goes wrong, they go back and get a white publicist. They don't go back and get a, a, a black publicist. They're done pretty much with black publicists. So if a, a black celebrity has a white publicist and they have a falling out for whatever reason, they go get another white publicist.
0: Right. They don't think so, they a black publicist. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. So BJ is absolutely on point. This has been an issue that we've all discussed for years now. And I think it really has a lot to do with the talent. The talent is going to have to start speaking up. If they want like publicists, they're going to have to speak up. Because I remember one time, it was back in the 90s, once i lost my job, uh, they had, you know, dismantled the entire urban division at Capitol Records. And, and I was just so sad. You know, I was so down. I lost my job. And that week I had C.C. Winans in town. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she was doing a video project with um, Whitney. hmm And she took me and that following week, she was going to the Grammys Mm -hmm. and um, she was performing with Whitney and she was performing with pastor Shirley Caesar. So long story short, she was up for an award. Um, It was her first solo album. I'll never forget this along in his presence. And so Whitney was presenting to her Well, she won. And when she made her acceptance speech, she mentioned my name on the Grammys. Not only did my phone that night went off like a switchboard. I Mm -hmm. had, first of all, just lost my job. My phone went off like a switchboard. And two days later, I had me a job. That's right. That's right. So that taught me a lesson a long time ago, the power of artists and and what they can do to help help move your career forward. Absolutely. And Cece didn't think nothing about it because that's who she is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was her publicist at that time my first time ever working with her she just did me the honors and thanked me not only did she do that when I lost my job I stayed I went over to visit her and spent six or seven hours with her like who does that right, right. so I say all that to say that you know these artists are going to have to start sticking up for me they're in their power seat right and Denzel tells them that he wants him a, a black publicist He's going to get one. Right. End of conversation. Right. It really goes both ways.
0: Absolutely. Okay. So, this is one of my favorite questions to ask. Mm -hmm. We all have 24 hours in a day, Um, same 24 hours that Oprah has, that all of the, the most successful people in the world, but it's what we do with those 24 hours that makes a difference. Can you tell us? One to three things that you do in your twenty-four hours that you feel contributes to all of the success that you have had in your life and career.
1: Well, yeah, I, I definitely I pray and I'm spending more time doing that now. <laughs> my family. You know, I just lost my father in March. So right now it's it's all about my family, you know. I have my mother here, I take care of her, so I cook for her three times a day and So that's like, that is my schedule. That's my life now. Like, so everything else has to fit in around that. So those are the two things. And then of course, trying to just do something for myself, walking every day, trying to get up to four miles a day and just really trying to focus in on doing some things that I want to do. And I'm trying to eat better, take care of myself. That's been like the new thing for me. Whereas before I was so busy all the time. So I would just let this slip, that slide. I'm not I don't want to do that anymore. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. Those are the things that make sense. And of course my work, you know, um, but I put all those things before my work now.
0: Excellent. So my last question, this podcast is called built by a boss. You've worked with some amazing women who were the biggest bosses ever. (laughs) (laughs) What is your definition of a boss? Oh,
1: what is mine? Someone who is um, confident, someone who is kind, someone who is generous, someone who is smart, someone who is a believer, someone who loves, someone who is friendly, and purpose. Mm-hmm. someone who has a bigger person purpose than themselves. That's really important. And I see that more so when I work with celebrities. All the, I've been fortunate because all of the celebrities that I work with, they always had a bigger purpose than themselves. Yeah. And I think that keeps them grounded. So I think, you know, purpose is, is definitely higher on the list.
0: Excellent. Gwendolyn Quinn, thank you so much. Thank so you, much. Evelyn. And thank you so- so much
1: for thinking of me. I really appreciate it. I have been, um, i received several requests to do interviews and I just was like, "Mm, I don't want to do that. I want to do that now. (laughs) But uh,
0: I said, yeah. That's why this podcast is so important to me. It's similar to your vision for your magazine because there are so many powerful women out here whose stories are not being told, that are not appearing in mainstream magazines that are changing the world and that have their own businesses and their own clients and their own stories. And I want to be able to tell them in depth through conversation so people can hear their voices and their spirits and, and allow their souls to come through. So thank you again for, for agreeing to talk to me today. And um, I think everybody's going to be just so excited to hear your thoughts about everything that's happening right now. So Thank you.
1: Uh-huh. Thank you.
0: I'm Evelyn Brooks, and you've been listening to Built by a Boss. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Gwendolyn Quinn. If you're new to the show, like this episode, and found it valuable, please take a moment to leave a five star review and a comment. It really helps other people find us who might like the podcast. You can join our Built by a Boss Patreon community for as low as $1 a month and help us create more content like our Increase Your Side Income course on Teachable that's designed to help beginning entrepreneurs on their journey. Follow us at Built by a Boss on Instagram and Facebook for more information and also visit me at In My Solitude LA for wellness content that supports your mind, body, and spirit. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, be kind, be brave, be better, be a boss.